I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And today on Weird House Cinema, we are going to be talking about the 1976 science fiction film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, directed by Nicholas Rogue and starring David Bowie. Uh, this is a film that has been on my radar for many years. I knew it had a reputation for being quite strange and, uh, according to some critics, at least quite good, though I think critical opinion is divided. Uh, and I'd never seen it before, didn't really know anything about it at all. And uh, so so here we are to talk about it. I, I just finished it this morning. Yeah, this this is one I had never seen in its entirety before. I just had vague memories of catching parts of it on like a lonely afternoon in the 90s on A&E television. So uh, <laughs> certainly certainly not a, a full understanding of the picture. I just had really some visions of the alien David Bowie and some basic kind of like meandering about in the 70s. Man, showing this on TV must involve a lot of editing. It's like every insurance salesman in the film gets naked. Yeah, this, is, this might be our nakedest film uh, that we've covered on Weird House Cinema. Um, it's our 30th selection from the 1970s, and it, it's also pretty long. This one actually ties Piranha Mandir at, for the longest film we've covered on Weird House. Both of those clock in at 138 minutes, though initially, in the initial U.S. release of the film, there was something like 20 minutes, maybe even, I've seen some people talk about 30 minutes being cut off. I think it's more like 20 minutes were cut from the film for that initial release. I wonder what 20 minutes those were. Um, I'm well, I think some of the some of the naked bits for sure. Uh, there's the um, uh, "Hello, Mary Lou" sequence that we'll get to later on. It's my understanding that was cut in its entirety. Uh, I see. But it's it's weird to consider this film and cuts, as we'll discuss. Like the this is not necessarily a linear plot. Um, you know, there um, it, this this film 
you know, drifts across the peripheries of multiple genres. Um, there are a lot of ideas in it. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the film's strengths, but it's also been pointed out as a weakness by its uh, many detractors. Uh, I wanted to touch on just a couple of um, reviewers and what they have said about this film in the past. Okay, first up, Roger Ebert. You know, we often check in, see what the great Roger Ebert had to say about films. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes we agree with him wholeheartedly. Sometimes, uh, you know, we have to agree to disagree. Um, he reviewed this film twice, once upon its release in 76, and then again in 2011 for its re-release. He gave it 2.5 stars initially, and then later in 2011, he bumped that up to three stars. Classic Ebert do-over. Yeah. It's like, but in still, the airplane over the sea. Oh, no, actually, I, th I think that's a 10. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, it's still always interesting to, to hear what he had to say. Um, so in, in 76, he wrote, quote, It requires an almost courageous leap of the imagination to take Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth seriously. Here is a film so preposterous and posturing, so filled with gaps of logic and continuity, that if it weren't so solemn, there'd be the temptation to laugh aloud. And yet, at the same time, this is a film filled with interesting ideas. It's like a bunch of tentative sketches for a more assured film that was never made. I think that's sort of right on the money. I mean, it just, I think, depends on how appealing or unappealing those various elements are to you. Mm -hmm. uh, there are parts, I, I'd i say overall, I think I quite liked The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I I've re I really liked the other one Nicholas Rogue movie I've seen. And there were similarities, stylistic similarities between them uh, that we can talk about as we go on. But there, yeah, there are things about this movie that, it would be hard to argue they really work like the scene where um, where David Bowie's character is arguing with his uh, human lover, Mary Lou, played by Candy Clark, and he gets angry and smacks a tray of chocolate chip cookies yes. out of her hand and they fly up into the air and we see them in slow motion like the uh, spaceships or like the bone turning into the spaceship in 2001 mm -hmm. and then the cookies fall to the floor and they're all broken. And I think that the camera kind of lingers on that like, oh, the cookies are broken, you know, like their souls or like, like the relationship. <laughs> or something i mean that is that is high camp that is funny yes. yeah like that that has to be intentionally humorous right i laughed out loud at that sequence but to interpret it as intentionally humorous does take like a leap of faith because there's no wink at you at all it's you know they're, they're not there's nothing that you could use to really prove that this is supposed to be funny like that moment is played deadly serious in the movie yeah. itself yeah, there. I think that the main scene that jumps out as potentially having that wink is where the goons are trying to throw Buck Henry out the window, and they the, their first attempt, he like cracks the glass and falls yes. back on the living room floor. Yes, and and he, and he apologizes to them. He's like, "I'm sorry," and they're like, "Ah, don't worry about it." And then they throw him out the window to his. Dad. I I agree. That moment clearly, yeah, that kind of it it breaks the reality a bit and and becomes more intentionally funny. And yet, you could get the wrong idea from what we're talking about and assume that that means the man who fell to earth is some kind of farce, which for the most part, I think it's not. I think mm -hmm. most of this movie is meant to be taken seriously to, uh, to, you know, to convey emotion and drama between the characters in the straightforward way it's presented. And you are supposed to feel what the characters are feeling. So it just has these strange kind of moments where, something absolutely ridiculous happens, but then it, it goes back into being a kind of 
ponderous uh, exploration of of alienation and alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. The alcoholism is a, is a, a one of the central themes in this in this film, and I understand in the book it's based upon. And uh, yeah, it's. I think a lot of films you expect you 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 know reasonably expect more of a linear progression. Uh, scene A speaks to scene B, and so forth. This is a movie where it's like you have all these different scenes with different interactions between characters, and they may speak to each other um, without any real consideration of of time and space. You know, it's like you're triangulating a feeling out of different points in the film. Yes, and I think also contributing to what you, you're saying there. Uh, we'll probably get into more detail about this later on, but David Bowie's performance itself, he's the central character in the movie. I would say his acting performance is incredibly ambiguous to the point of almost feeling kind of random. Like Mm -hmm. Newton is often, uh, the character he plays in this movie is named Thomas Jerome Newton. And Newton goes through much of the plot being kind of aloof and spacey and unemotional. He's sort of detached from the action. He doesn't display a lot of emotion. And then there are suddenly moments when he does display a lot of emotion, and they're not always what you'd really expect based on the context of the scene or the the dramatic arc of the film as a whole. The way he sort of occasionally comes out of his somnambulant and detached state and displays emotion almost feels like like Bowie kind of like rolled a die before he did each scene. It was like, how am I going to play this one? And, and rather than like reading the script and thinking, what would be logical in this scene? Yeah. And it's I mean, this is especially a weird film to try and judge um, an actor's performance in, especially someone like Bowie, who is coming into this, as we'll discuss, you know, not not a tremendous filmography under his belt, coming in mainly as a rock star celebrity. And with Bowie especially, I've always found this to be the case and and found it to be the case leading up to this episode, trying to figure out like who he really was. It's like that scene in Nolan's Batman sequel where you're trying to knock down or the various scenes where you're trying to figure out the origin story of the Joker. It's like a oh, different yeah. story each time. And it makes you feel like, well, nothing is real. Like he's completely protean. He's this this shapeshifter. Yes, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, Bowie can very much feel like that, uh, which which is not a knock on Bowie. Of course, I love no, David no. Bowie's That's music and part uh, of his and, mystique. And you know, not a knock on him, despite what I just said. Not really a knock on him as an actor, because despite the the kind of random displays of emotion and odd choices he makes throughout the film, it it does make it harder to take this movie as a straightforward drama. But at the same time, while he's sort of Bowie's contributions are kind of taking away from the movie in one direction, they are adding greatly to it in another, which Bowie just brings some kind of powerful uh, energy to the screen. And he, he is hard to, uh, to look away from. Absolutely. I mean, anybody you look at talking about this film, they, they almost always at the very least praise Bowie's performance. So like when Ebert came back and revisited this film, yeah, he was acknowledging the cult status. He praised Bowie's uh, quote unquote eerie performance. And he wrote, quote, it's slow going at times and the plot isn't worthy of the performances. Too many shots of limousines and an unexplained big truck. Too many unfocused conversations in offices. I gave it 2.5 stars in 76. That was about right. But I'm nudging it up to three stars for the 2011 re-release. Star ratings are meaningless anyway, so consider this just a quiet protest vote against the way projects this ambitious are no longer possible in the mainstream movie industry. 
I see what he's saying there. So like, it, even though he thinks this is still a very flawed film, given the convergence of uh, a greater proportion of modern movies on a kind of like safe, uh, marketable sameness, uh, he, he looks back and is like, well, okay, they tried to do something really weird and really different, different and really ambitious with this story. And there might've been ways that it, that it didn't quite work, but it, great respect for trying. Yeah. Now, I, I also frequently cite the writings of Psychotronic Film Guide author Michael Weldon uh, as well. You know, he, he, he almost always has something to say about uh, the films we cover on this show. And, you know, sometimes it's very matter of fact, like this is what this film was. Other times there's a little more um, like review quality uh, to what he's written. And this is such a film. Uh, the really interesting thing, though, to me anyway, is that he absolutely praises the film, seems to love the film. Uh, and Bowie's performance in it, while also seemingly being rather dismissive of Bowie's musical career. Um, um, so I'm going to read part of what he has to say. Reminder that this review would have been written no later than 1983. Quote, David Bowie makes a great alien, and this fascinating science fiction film, which spans 25 years, will be revived in the future long after most of his derivative rock albums land in the cutout bins. Okay, Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I guess some folks don't like Bowie's music. Uh, I mean, I guess to be fair, Bowie's discography covers a lot of ground, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't like it, you don't like it. I, I like it. I, I'm yeah. a Bowie fan. I mean, he could, pr it could prove true eventually. There may come a day where people are like David Bowie, who, and they're like oh, the guy from the Man Who Fell to Earth, and like, oh yes, he's amazing. Oh yes, that strange he man. Had a musical career. Oh Why? wow watching 25 televisions and screaming, get out of my mind. <laughs> All right. Well, my uh, elevator pitch for this one, I went through a few different possibilities, but ultimately I'm landing on David Bowie is from outer space, but like for real. I do think it's interesting that by this point, David Bowie had already been playing an alien. Wasn't the premise of Ziggy Stardust that he was an alien who who came to Earth and, and started a rock band? And then that was 1972, I think. And then several years later, the, he's in a movie based on this premise, but it's it was a movie based on a book that already existed. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he was auditioning for the film with his <laughs> with his career up to that point. Um and uh, uh, yeah, you, you have a better head for all the different personas he went through, because, again, that's another aspect of the protean nature of Bowie. It's like there are these different phases, different incarnations. And in a way, this film ends up being like another version of himself, you know, that uh, that is out there in the same way that Jareth, uh, the Goblin King from Labyrinth, is like another Bowie persona that kind of lives in the same pantheon. Well, I, I'm not going to pretend to have a deep knowledge of all the faces of Bowie and the different personas he uh, adopted over the years. Uh, so I know there was the Ziggy Stardust thing, which I think was more audacious and supposed to be more audacious and outlandish than than this kind of persona. I have seen the Man Who Fell to Earth persona linked to Bowie's uh, musical stage persona known as the, quote, Thin White Duke, which is apparently one of his more odious faces <laughs> okay. uh, that, that also, I think, had to do with uh, a time of his life where he, he had genuine drug addiction. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know a lot about that, but it does seem like this movie sort of fits in somewhere in the mid 70s in his career and does contribute to his evolving stage persona as a musical performer as well. I, I read just drastically um, 
contrasting things about Bowie's performance in this. Like on one hand, I think I saw something where they, like Bowie said that he was whacked out on drugs when they filmed this and he doesn't remember it. And then there are other stories where like um, Nicholas Rogue is like, no, no, he gave up drugs for this film and was, you know, very punctual and very professional. And then you also hear things about how Rogue apparently at one point entertained the idea of casting Michael Crichton in this role, which what? just because he was tall, I guess, and maybe had a little like, but it was like that gives you some insight into what he was maybe at some point going for here. Like he wanted a non-actor who also had some level of celebrity status of the, at the time period. And, you know, and then how does that play into sort of the expectations of how this character was going to come across on screen? Is this before or after Westworld? Ooh, I, I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. So annoying. You Google Westworld now and this TV series comes up. It's like I don't want to know the, the <laughs> I want to know about the movie. Oh, nineteen seventy three. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you know, that was written up. and directed by Michael Crichton. So it's like I want the guy who directed Yul Brynner in Westworld to play my <laughs> alien. Yeah, I mean, Crichton was uh, was pretty successful at the time. He, uh, so I don't know. I guess it makes sense. But I, I will drive home that. David Bowie's performance in this does not feel like your typical non-actor or celebrity immediately turned actor performance. There's a lot more there to consider. I think the way I would put it is, despite him making some dramatic choices that almost seem to work against this directly, Bowie just has overwhelming screen charisma and is mm-hmm. very uh, interesting and believable as a as a performer. Absolutely. All right, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer audio. Are you the... the first? The first one. Visitor? I've always been visited. Nothing you have seen or heard about David Bowie will prepare you for the impact of his first dramatic performance in The Man Who Fell to Earth. This is another dimension of David Bowie, one of the few true originals of our time. You're really a freak. I don't mean that unkindly. I like freaks. Is this a weapon? A weapon? It's too small for interplanetary travel. Assume that it's a weapon. If I stay here, I shall die. What do you mean? Take me with you. I'll see you don't die. I can't stay. You're an alien! I think you know... You know too much about me. Where are you taking me? He's just like everybody else. He's, he's, he's a fake. Please don't do it. You don't understand. You might be able to save him. Mary Lou. Save him? Help me. From what? No! No! Tell me I love you. fell to earth is a powerful love story, a cosmic mystery, a spectacular fantasy, a shocking, mind-stretching experience in sight 
in space and sex. Well, if you want to watch The Man Who Fell to Earth uh, in its entirety before you continue on with this episode or after we talk about the people involved in it, luckily, it's widely available in all formats. I'm not even sure exactly which edition I rented from Videodrome. Maybe the 40th anniversary edition. They had like several different versions, and I think it's also available um, in the Criterion Collection. Uh, It's been put out a number of times. Yeah, I just streamed it this time. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. 
Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, let's jump into the people involved here. Uh, as we've been, been saying, the director is Nicholas Rogue, who lived 1928 through 2018. English film director and cinematographer with a noted and highly influential style, often characterized as featuring fractured editing and nonlinear storytelling techniques. He's also uh, pretty well known for his depictions of nudity and sex in his films, but the details of this are a bit more nuanced, as we'll discuss. I think Rogue has a reputation, at least, for uh, for using sex to great dramatic effect in his films. So he makes movies that have a lot of sex in them, but it's not just uh, you know, for the sake of depicting sex and nudity, it more so than in most films is sort of a a scene in which uh, dramatic uh, relationships and interactions between characters are are developed. Yeah, yeah. Like the flesh is not the end point. The flesh is a storytelling tool or a character creation, character um, development tool. So we'll have more to say about that as we we roll on. It's it's really I think one of the one of the several interesting things about the picture. Uh, Rogue's cinematography credits extend back to 61 and include such films as 64 as The Mask of the Red Death. Um, there's one sequence in particular. Uh, I, I imagine you probably noticed this as well. Remember in Mask of the Red Death, we had the procession of different rooms that are different colors. Mm, and yeah. what did we have in this film? We had a similar thing pretty late in the picture, uh, like the, the penthouse uh, in which uh, the man who fell to earth is imprisoned has this uh, feel to it. I did not make that connection, but you're exactly right. In the rooms, yeah, the, you go from like a, well, yeah, like one of the rooms is a sort of a yellow room that is a, it has wallpaper up that depicts a forest in autumn and yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we featured Mask of the Red Death on a previous episode of Weird House. So go back and listen to that one if you want more on that. But that one was directed by Roger Corman, right? Rogue did cinematography on cinematography, it? Cinematography, okay. yeah. So yeah, started off on the, the cinematographer side of things. He worked on Fahrenheit 451. Then he ventures into directing with 1970s performance starring James Fox and Mick Jagger. And then came 1971's Walkabout and 73's Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now is the other Nicholas Rogue directed film I've seen, which uh, it's been a number of years now. But I remember that being a, a, a very uh, dark and sad, but very interesting and compelling horror film. Yeah, I've, I'm familiar with it by reputation. This one had uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. That sounds right. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen it. The only other film that I've seen by him is The Witches from 1990, which um, you know is ultimately a, a children's uh, film, but also also a very interesting one. Anyway, following The Man Who Fell to Earth, he did Eureka in 83. He did, I'm not sure to what degree, he did some sort of music video collaboration work with Roger Waters. Uh, he did a segment in 87's Aria, uh, The Witches in 90, Cold Heaven in 91, a 1993 TV adaptation of Heart of Darkness. And then there was a period featuring a couple of erotic or semi-erotic film projects, I'm not sure, an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicle show, <laughs> and a 2007 horror film titled Puffball, The Devil's Eyeball, there's also a 1996 Samson and Delilah movie in the mix there that it looks like it has a solid cast. Oh, man. A, a Nicholas Rogue movie about the Bible? That sounds up my alley. Yeah. All right. The screenplay is by Paul Mayersberg, born 1941. 
Uh, he was an, apparently an uncredited writer on Roger Corman's The Tomb of Ligia from 1964, followed by staff writing work on Conrad Rook's adaptation of Herman Hesse's Siddhartha in 72. Subsequent screenplay work includes 77's The Disappearance, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, 1983's Eureka, 1988's Nightfall, 1990's The Last Samurai, not the Tom Cruise one. Um, and that Nightfall, by the way, that is a uh, an adaptation of Isaac Asimov's um, work, Nightfall. Uh, he also directed that. Oh, interesting. The screenplay is adapted from the novel, the original novel by Walter Tevis, who lived 1928 through 1984, an American novelist and screenwriter. He wrote the novels The Hustler, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Mockingbird, The Steps of the Sun, The Queen's Gambit, and The Color of Money. Obviously, Wait. The Hustler, yeah. Color. So did he write multiple pool-related novels? Yeah, yeah. I okay. think one is the follow-up to the other. Uh, but Oh, I see. Yeah. But yeah, The Hustler, The Queen's Gambit, and The Color of Money were all, of course, made into films. I would not have guessed that in a million years. Wow. Same writer as The Color of Money. Yeah. And then uh, we should also point out that The Man Who Fell to Earth was has been adapted a few different times. Uh, this was the first adaptation, but then it was adapted in 87 as a TV movie with Beverly D'Angelo and Will Wheaton. Hmm. And then there's a real recent TV series adaptation uh, that came out in 2022. Um, and it looks interesting as well and has a good cast. Oh, it's got Bill Nye and uh, Chiwetela Ejiofor. Yeah, yeah. So Bill Nye apparently plays David Bowie's character from this film, but an okay. older version of him. So I guess it's kind of like a sequel, but again, I haven't seen it, so I, I don't know, you know, all the, the details there. Just looked it up. Geofor is playing somebody named Faraday. That's not a character who was in this movie, so I don't know I if that's a character so. from the book or something. Maybe he's a new alien. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, uh, I just saw some stills from it. Okay. But now it's time to talk about David Bowie. Yes, uh, David Bowie plays Thomas Jerome Newton, uh, Bowie lived 1947 through 2016. Uh, yeah, le a legend uh, of music and film and just culture in general. An enigmatic figure who seemed to to revel in alternate personas and phases and reinvention. Again, there's this kind of protean element to his celebrity image. Um, his music career often flowed in and out of cinema in the form of short film music videos, full-blown musicals, and more. Uh, he'd had a handful of bit roles before this movie but the man who fell to earth like propelled him into sort of into like lead status hmm. this movie by the way if i'm looking at everything correctly occurs in his discography between 1976's station to station and 1977's low low features a photo of bowie from this film as the album art oh okay um, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have identified that because the cover of Lowe is, uh, the background is very orange, which is not really one of the dominant colors in this film. Uh, but Except yeah, I guess, his hair. Oh, that's true. You're right. The, the orange and the, the sort of yellow in the front of the bangs. Uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, he, uh, what he's wearing sort of like a, a coat without a dark coat with a high collar. Yeah. Yeah. Side profile. Yeah. And that, that's a coat that he wears several times in this movie. We see him in that when he first arrives on Earth and he's like sort of uh, uh, climbing down a hillside in the in the American Southwest after his ship has crashed and he's wearing this big coat. But there are other times where he shows up 
like he appears to rip torn at one point and he's just got the the coat on and the hood on and he's like hello we're going to meet tomorrow and rip torn's like ah and then they meet <laughs> the next day they do yeah yeah it's an important scene to prepare you for that meeting <laughs> well uh after this movie bowie um he followed this up with david hemming's 1978 film just a gigolo uh, Alan Clark's Ball in 82, The Hunger in 83, which is a vampire movie, the Japanese war film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence in 83, John Landis is Into the Night in 85, Absolute Beginners in 86, Jim Henson's Labyrinth in 86 as well, The Last Temptation of Christ in 88, he plays a uh, pilot in that. And from here, from there on out, his acting roles, they seem to enter a, like a different phase, a lot of smaller roles. He appears in Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me in 92. He played Andy Warhol in Basquiat in 96. Tesla in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige in 2006. A very fun, small role, uh, you know, kind of a cameo. Uh, and he also played himself in various movies and TV shows, sometimes, you know, to comedic effect. Like he's in Zoolander, I think, as himself, that sort of thing. Putting a musician in a movie doesn't always work. I think it's the kind of thing people assume would work because it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're a rock star that takes a certain kind of charisma, but it doesn't always translate into playing a role in a drama. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think with Bowie, it does. I mean, Bowie... Bowie might have some kind of weird, uh, some some contours popping out of the role he's assigned within a script that are just pure Bowie. Uh, but at the same time, he's he's clearly quite good as a screen actor. Yeah, like we've been saying, it's just a tremendous performance. You can't take your eyes off of it. He has this, like, just his physicality is so strange and alluring. He has this great kind of sickly elfin energy. Um, yeah. that is even distinct in like looking at these other Bowie roles, like the Goblin King in Labyrinth is essentially an elf, you know, <laughs> granted it's many years later, but totally different energy to that elfin character. Oh yeah. No, the Goblin King is like, he is in charge. He's in control. He is the dominant master of his kingdom. Uh, the, Bowie's character in this film is, uh, even when he's playing like a, a character who is the head of a great industry and has all this money and is being driven around everywhere, he is a man who is constantly alienated and off balance and uh, afraid of what might happen and, and not uh, in control. Yeah. All right. We also have Rip Torn in this film playing Nathan Bryce. Torn lived 1931 through 2019. American actor of stage, TV, and film with credits going back to the mid-50s. He acted and eventually directed on Broadway uh, as well, having studied at the Actors Studio in New York under Lee Strasberg. Early TV credits include such shows as Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Thriller. He went on to play Judas in 1961's uh, King of Kings. Uh, he betrays Jeffrey Hunter's Jesus, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, the story goes that he was originally cast in the Jack Nicholson role for Easy Rider, but got into a what seems to be a very heated argument with Dennis Hopper, the details of which were later the subject of legal battles. What? So, yeah, yeah, you can read about it online. There were there were some disagreements about who started what fight, who may have pulled a knife on who, and uh, they, the courts had to settle it. But I can't imagine the noises Rip Torn made in in this argument because I bet they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has a kind of a bestial quality to him i think that's one of the like there's a yeah there's rip torn has a um there's an energy there uh, he, he unleashes some fearsome growls and grunts throughout the man who fell to earth 
Yeah. <laughs> he played Henry Miller in 1970's Tropic of Cancer. He appeared in Michael Crichton's 78 film Coma. And in 1982, he played the child-sacrificing villain Max in Don Cossarelli's The Beastmaster. Very fun performance, that one. Uh, but that doesn't stop there. He played uh, the, a CEO in 93's RoboCop 3. He played Zed in the Men in Black franchise. And, oh, he played General Electric CEO Don Geis on, the, on 30 Rock. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was nominated for an Oscar for his role in Cross Creek in 83. And he also, I think, had multiple Emmy nominations for his role as Artie, the producer on The Larry Sanders Show. I guess this reveals I've never seen a lot of his work, but I mean, he's got that that distinctive voice and he he's one of those character actors who can just show up for a a cameo role and the lines written for him don't have to be funny at all. Just like the way his voice sounds and the way he looks makes the role comedic. I think this may be the first film I've watched, the first anything I've watched with Rip Torn in it where he's not an outright villain or they're at least to prop up comedic effect. Yeah, I agree. This is, I think, the first time I've ever seen him in just a straight dramatic role. All right. We also have Candy Clark playing the character Mary Lou, who we've alluded to already. Uh, Candy Clark was born in 1947, probably best known for her role as Debbie Dunham in 1973's American Graffiti, for which she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, only her fourth film role. Uh, subsequent credits include ooh, a wonderful list of movies, 78's The Big Sleep, a film called More American Graffiti in 79, which I didn't realize was mm -hmm. a thing. She's in Larry Cohen's Q, The Winged Serpent, a fabulously fun giant monster film in, uh, set in New York from 1982. She's in the Chopper movie Blue Thunder. She's in Amityville 3D in, from 83. She's in Stephen King's Cat's Eye from 85. She's in the 1988 Blob remake. She is in Cool as Ice, the Vanilla Ice movie from 1991. Mm. Oh, that's that's a fan favorite. That's the movie where we discover that Vanilla Ice can jump a motorcycle over a fence without a ramp. I guess he just kind of lifts it. He's faster than a horse in that. There's like the whole racing the horse yeah. sequence there, right? Well, I believe that motorcycle can go faster than a horse. Well, yeah, but yeah, I don't know why it seems to, some. I mean, the, you throw Vanilla Ice into the equation, it just raises questions. I think also that he's that's a movie about him falling in love with and trying to date a, a, a girl whose father, whose disapproving father is the gun guy from Tremors. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, it's been I saw a Riff Tracks version of this. So I've never watched it straight up. Um, anyway, she plays Buffy's mom in Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 92. She's in Zodiac from 2007. And she did a number of, of TV episodes over the years as well, including episodes of Fairy Tale Theater and Twin Peaks. I thought Candy Clark was fantastic in this movie. She is the human soul of the film, whereas Bowie is giving this kind of uh, random, uncontrolled, ambiguous performance where you don't always understand where his emotional displays are coming from or why they're happening this way at this time or what his, or what the source of his aloofness is. What is he really feeling? She is there to be the anchor of pure, understandable, earth-based human emotion. And she uh, she's quite powerful in her role, I think. Yeah, it's a, a role that's often has this kind of like raw, innocent, unfiltered feeling about it. You know, again, she's the she's definitely the, the human heart of the picture. All right. We also have a character named Oliver Farnsworth. He's a patent lawyer that becomes important to the plot and eventually, eventually ends up running David Bowie's uh, earthly empire. Mm -hmm. 
uh, played by Buck Henry, who lived 1930 through 2020, American actor, screenwriter, and director who worked on a lot of interesting projects over the years. Uh, his writing credits include 67's The Graduate, 1970's Catch-22, 73's The Day of the Dolphin, and 1995's To Die For. His directing credits include 78's Heaven Can Wait. I believe he co-directed with Warren Beatty on that one. His acting credits include bit parts in various things he wrote. Um, but I'll single out here that he did one Tales from the Crypt episode and was also a familiar face on 30 Rock playing Liz Lemon's dad, Dick Lemon. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, old Dick Lemon. Yeah, it's a fun, fun role. Uh, he also is, you know, kind of linked to especially early Saturday Night Live because he was uh, he hosted like 10 different times. Oh, OK. Uh, I think he is also quite good in this movie. Yeah, he is often wearing some really distracting glasses, like reading glasses, yes. I guess, that it just like, you know, total Coke bottle, uh, very, what, um, Trailer Park Boys, I guess, would be the comparison to compare yes. to modern media. Yes. There is a tragic part where some goons come to his apartment to do him harm and they take his glasses off and he says, those are my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, this, this is a, a good performance uh, as well. In large part because Nicholas Rogue or, seems to have decided at some point, it's like, it doesn't matter how small a character you are in this film, we can still get in there and show you at your most tender. We can show, like, where your heart is, even if it's really not necessary, arguably, for the overall plot. Yeah, this is a character whose role in the in the plot progression is just as like a lawyer and then a corporate functionary. But we get these moments of like him at his, in his home life with his, uh, with his partner, Trevor. And they, they seem to have this uh, wonderful supportive relationship. And like, there's no reason in most films that you would see this character's home life and their relationships. Mm -hmm. You just see him like executing orders that are to be done for the project. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, their relationship is sweet. And uh, I'm, I'm ultimately glad it was included, you know, even though if it's exactly the sort of thing you can imagine someone arguing for a cut. They're like, why do we need to know this? And you know what? That continued th that trend of like showing surprising glimpses of home and family life and relationships with characters who would otherwise in, in other stories just be purely functional sort of game pieces. That's true also of like even the, the sort of the. I don't know if you'd call them villains, like the antagonists of Bowie's character in the movie, including like rival corporate agents and people who work for the government who are ultimately trying to enact a conspiracy against David Bowie. That's right. And that includes the character Peters, played by Bernie Casey, who lived 1939 through 2017. He was an American football player turned actor. I, uh, as I've had to do before, I'll, I'll leave it to you, gentle listeners. If anyone out there knows football, you can write in and tell us what Bernie Casey's like role in football was and, and like how big a deal he was. But at any rate, he was a football player. He became an actor and his credits have a, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of diversity in the sort of roles he played. Like, for instance, he's in 1972's Gargoyles, a desert gargoyle film. And yes, he plays a gargoyle, like a full body gargoyle uh, costume wearing gargoyle in this. We've talked about checking this out to see whether it'd be good for the show or not, because I think, wasn't it directed by Stan Winston or something? Or if oh. maybe effects by Stan Winston? It was like a, a made-for-TV movie about gargoyles that live underground in New Mexico. Yeah, it's another one that I think I weirdly saw, like, on A&E, 
on a Sunday afternoon. There's like, there's certain films, they're almost all 70s films. And for, for some reason, like A&E was really into playing them um, on Sunday afternoons. I don't know what it was. Anyway, he was in 73's Cleopatra Jones. He was in 1976's uh, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde. 1977's Ants, exclamation point. Uh, Roots, The Next Generations in 79. He was also in Sharky's Machine, an Atlanta movie uh, that came out in 1981. I haven't seen that. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't either. But it's I'm always kind of interested in older Atlanta movies, you know, uh, as I've explained before. Like The Visitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah The Visitor especially. Um, he was in Never Say Never Again from 83. This is the second adaptation of the James Bond Thunderball novel. Did he play Felix Leiter in that? Uh, I'm not sure. This was what this was the one where Sean Connery came out of retirement, right? And there was like some sort of rights issue that allowed them to do it. That sounds right. So it was not sanctioned by the official, I don't know, the 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 James Bond uh, media machine. It was not one of the official franchise films. It's just like we got Sean Connery. For some reason, it's legal for us to make Thunderball. So we're just going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think I've maybe seen it once. Uh, let's see, what else uh, was uh, Bernie Casey in? 88's I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka. 80, uh, in 89, he was in Bill and Ted. Uh, he was in Under Siege in 92. And, oh, he's in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness from 94. I forgot about this. I believe he plays one of Sam Neill's characters, uh, like um, insurance buddies. Oh, okay, yeah. Was he his boss not, or something? Yeah, like it's not a not a huge role, but they're, they're, I think he's in that sequence where they're having lunch at a cafe and... Uh, a Sutter Kane fan smashes the window in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, like a guy runs up into like smashes the window with an axe or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Bernie Casey also has some interesting TV credits: Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, Babylon Five, Sequest twenty thirty two, and also a voice role on Batman Beyond. And yeah, like you're saying, this is a another role that doesn't call for any fleshing out. Uh, really, this is just um, not not even a secondary character in the film. But Rogue goes the extra mile to give us insight into his romantic and family life. Wait, I f- did you mention also has him skinny dipping? Oh yeah, of, of all the actors I've mentioned here, Buck Henry is the only one that doesn't have a nude scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we get this scene between um, Peters and Peter's wife where they're skinny dipping and it's kind of this dreamlike, yeah, a dreamlike nude bathing scene um, that um, I guess it's probably less talked about in terms of the other nude scenes in this film. But uh, I, I thought it was, it was very, again, very beautiful, very dreamlike. Uh, again, a sequence that shows a lot of skin, but it isn't about their skin. Like it's about, it's about their hearts. I know that sounds cheesy to say it out loud, but like, like that's what it is. It's like, this isn't about their bodies. It's about, the relationship between these two characters and we can argue to what extent we really needed this insight into their their the way they feel because their characters are not as central to the plot as other characters yeah again if this were another movie what peters does is primarily be involved in a conspiracy to imprison david bowie in a hotel room yeah <laughs> Uh, one last uh, actor I'm going to mention here, and this is uh, Claudia Jennings, who plays Peter's wife. She lived 1949 through 1979. Not a huge role, but we do get some sense of her character. We get a sense of her as a mother, even. Um, she was, uh, Claudia Jennings was a was 1970 Playboy Playmate of the Year and made quite a splash in B-movies during her short career. So her credits include 72's The Unholy Rollers. I think that's a roller derby kind of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um 
a movie also from 72 called Group Marriage. So future shock alert on that one. Uh-huh. 73's Gator Bait, um, which is a swamp movie, uh, like some sort of an action swamp movie. I don't think I've seen it, but I'm familiar with the title. Uh, it's a exploitation film. So it is. It's a swamp exploitation film. And I think they, they made a sequel that she's not in. It's something like Gator Bait to Cajun Justice. That's it. Um, she's in 78's Death Sport. And she's in the 1979 David Cronenberg car racing movie Fast Company that also has John Saxon and George Buzza. Never seen it. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, getting to the music on this picture, it's interesting because there's a whole like saga here. There's a whole story. And there are also differing details about how it all came together. But basically, David Bowie was originally going to tackle the score and soundtrack for this film as well. Um, but apparently a variety of issues prevented this from happening. So there was like there were time issues. There were like royalty issues for some of the tracks that he was eyeballing. There were creative hurdles like, you know, we're talking about the different personas and phases of David Bowie. And it uh, it sounds like like maybe he was kind of between phases to a certain extent at that time. Uh, so instead, we have a very fractured soundtrack, which I think ultimately fits the film and was intended to capture a diverse sense of American music. But we have two chief individuals contributing tracks here. The first is John Phillips, uh, who lived 1935 through 2001. So, yes, this is John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Mm. He wrote most of the songs that we associate with the Mamas and the Papas, as well as uh, what San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair. Though, I'm not sure, was that a Mamas and the Papas song or was that somebody else performing it? I don't know. Anyway, he was also one of the writers on the 1988 Beach Boys song Kokomo for the Tom Cruise film Cocktail. And this was his first picture as a composer and probably the best known of the handful of films that he composed for. Now, I assumed that Phillips was ultimately going to be responsible for only the folkier tracks and the rockier tracks on here. Uh, and certainly he does give us the track Bluegrass Breakdown, which you can listen to on, you know, the, you can stream this soundtrack wherever you get your music. But he also did an excellent electronic track on this titled Space Capsule. So uh, uh, that, that track I, I really liked as well. But then we have other tracks contributed by Stomu Yamashita, born 1947. We, we talked about him previously on Weird House Cinema as he did the montage music for Phase 4, the, uh, the weird Saul Bass Ant movie. Oh, okay. I'm trying to remember what the music for that movie was like. I don't quite. I I, re I remember the <laughs> the visuals far more. Yeah. Um, but Yamashita was a was is a Japanese percussionist, keyboardist, and composer known for helping diffuse traditional Japanese percussive music with Western prog rock in the '60s and '70s. He was a member of the supergroup Go, alongside such names as Steve Winwood best known for the track Higher Love, and German electronic music pioneer Klaus Schultz. Uh, Yamashita also recorded, also scored, I'm sorry, 1982's Tempest, starring John Cassavetes, Susan Sarandon, Molly Ringwald, and Raul Julia. So his musical contributions on this film uh, are, are also really interesting and, and, and also kind of varied. Um, two tracks in particular, there's one called Poker Dice, and there's another one called One Way. Hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about how different this movie would have been if it had had a David Bowie soundtrack. That seems like that really would have changed the effect of it. And uh, I guess we don't get to know exactly what that's like, but I expect that would be more than a superficial change in the experience. It would be significant. I found that in just thinking about this movie, just knowing that I was even going to watch it, having not watched it yet, I still had myself constantly earwormed with Space Oddity and then also the Flight of the Concords parody song, Bowie's in Space. I, without even listening to these, like, you, you can't help but think about Bowie's music uh, when you're thinking about Bowie uh, and, and even in his acting work. Mm -hmm. All right, are we ready to talk about the plot? 
yeah, this, this man's not going to fall to earth on his own. We got to help him. Uh, so this is not one of those movies where it would make sense to discuss things scene by scene. Instead, I think what I'm going to do here is give a short synopsis of the whole film, and then we can come back and focus in more depth on things that stood out to us. So basically the plot goes like this. A spacecraft crashes down in a lake somewhere in the American Southwest. I think it's in New Mexico. And we see a hooded figure emerge and make his way down a hill and through these like ruins of an old mining town and into a currently populated town. And this is David Bowie. And he looks human. In fact, he even speaks English and he speaks with a British accent. Uh, so he is an alien disguising himself as a human. He's trying to blend in. He doesn't want to be found out. And he goes around telling people his name is Thomas Jerome Newton and explains some of his weirdness by claiming that he is British. Yeah, it's like and it's rural New Mexico. So everyone's just like, all right, this, this sounds about right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the British are known to levitate. Uh, <laughs> no, he doesn't actually levitate. So he immediately starts trying to get money, which is interesting. I'm like, oh, why is he trying to get money? Like he tries to sell some jewelry at a shop, but he can't get what he wants for it. Uh, so he ends up meeting with a lawyer named Oliver Farnsworth. Farnsworth is a patent attorney, and Newton brings with him schematics for a number of technologies on which he wants to take out patents. And these are all revolutionary alien technologies, something things that we can't do on Earth at all yet. So Newton quickly becomes a multimillionaire, and he becomes the head of a corporation called the World Enterprises Corporation and hires Farnsworth to run the company for him. So now he's rolling in money, and Newton rides around in a limousine, remaining polite but aloof, like he's nice to people, but does not form any intimate connections and is always awkward and reserved. But that changes while he is on a visit to a hotel somewhere in the Southwest. He meets a woman named Mary Lou, played by Candy Clark. She is initially a worker at the hotel where he's staying, and he has like an episode in an elevator. The, the elevator is going up, and he is like, I, I don't know, rendered woozy by the G-forces of the elevator or something and collapses on the floor. And she carries him. She picks him up and carries him to his room and then takes care of him once he's there and they, they form what at first seems to be a fast friendship like they hang out talking all night I think they play cards or something she takes him to church and she introduces him to her favorite drink gin uh, yes. Beefeater is a brand with a serious presence in this film yeah I mean I guess this is a kind of a shame because prior to this he's he's always turning down alcohol and insisting on water he's yeah. like as we learn he's from a desert planet where there's there's little to no water and so the mere fact that anywhere you go, they offer you a water. He's like, yes, please, I'll take six. And then she's like, you know, you could just be drinking gin. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, this is great. I'll do this now. But Mary Lou does not know that she is causing severe harm to uh, to him by by getting him to switch from water to gin. Uh, but yeah, that is a good point that early in the film, like he's always asking for like when he goes to meet with the lawyer uh, at first, he goes to Farnsworth's house and they're like, would you like a scotch? And he's like, I'll have a glass of water if you have it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they act kind of amused by this. But yeah, he's always just looking for water everywhere he goes. I think there's even a scene where he like dips a cup early on in just a stream of what looks like cloudy, dirty water, this like runoff running through the, you know, in a ravine in the desert and drinks it and is really enjoying it. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting here that this is a film that 
maybe almost stealthily, if you, if you don't know to expect it, you might be surprised that it is a film that does seem to be in large part about alcoholism. Yeah. Um, and I understand that the, the, the author of the novel, part of this was, was semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do see him like struggling through alcohol addiction, through much of the film and having to interact in a world that also seems to be heavily dependent on alcohol uh, and constantly enabling of his alcohol consumption. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's right. That Those are constant themes. And uh, in many ways, it you could almost say that it's a story about a man who begins on a mission of supreme importance and is derailed from that mission by alcohol. Yeah. And derailed makes sense, too, because there is a train. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so eventually, Mary Lou and Newton, their their friendship blossoms and they fall in love, though at one point she asks if he is married and he sort of matter of factly says yes. And uh, but they they continue with their love affair nonetheless. Uh, and Newton has a house built for them on a lake in New Mexico and they start living together. Meanwhile, we've also been been getting to know Rip Torn as Dr. Nathan Bryce. A uh, He's pert- uh, portrayed as a university chemistry professor who has a series of inappropriate affairs with college students. And he is hassled by the man in university administration. Like the, there are scenes of his boss getting on his back about things, mm-hmm. including his affairs. So he leaves academia and takes a position with Newton's company. And he's sort of recruited to design some kind of spacecraft. I seem to recall a scene where he's arguing with his boss at the university about how he's like, ah, they want computers to do everything these days. Computers leave out the errors. That's where creativity comes from. Yeah, yeah. He does rail against computers there for a bit. And he's like, I am think I'm going to go work for this company that's actually hiring human beings. And that, of course, is David Bowie's company. Right. Uh, So as time goes on, Newton, in several ways, I would say, becomes more human, like his relationship with Mary Lou deepens, but he also becomes deranged by addiction to alcohol and television. Uh, Why would he need a TV when he's got T-Rex? Well, I don't know, but maybe in the world of this movie, T-Rex does not exist because David Bowie needs not one, but seven TVs to watch simultaneously and later about 20 TVs to watch all at the same time. He is obsessed with television. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes there's just a random TV. Like there's one scene where he's watching TV in like a shack and it's just sort of like Uh, haphazardly stacked on some kindling. Now, eventually, both Nathan Bryce and Mary Lou figure out that Newton is an alien. Nathan figures it out by secretly taking X-ray photographs of him while they're talking about work. And then uh, when he goes to confront Newton about this, Newton admits it. And actually, in this scene, that's the scene you were talking about, uh, which I think I want to get into more detail about in, in just a bit. But Basically, in the scene, Newton explains his mission. This is why he's on Earth. And he says, quote, where I come from, there's a terrible drought. We saw pictures of your planet on television. We saw the water. In fact, our word for your planet means planet of water. So Newton's home planet, it's all dried up. It's a desert. And he is here for Earth's water. I think not to, like, steal it all and kill us, but to somehow do something to get a significant amount of water back to his home planet. Yeah, like you get the the sense that he's not greedy. He just knows that there's so much water here that he can easily 
well, not easily, but like the, the big challenge is how to bring it back. But clearly, like we could stand to lose some of it and it would make an enormous difference for his people. Newton also reveals what he is to Mary Lou in a different set of circumstances. He reveals himself to Mary Lou, uh, I think, as a kind of atonement after they have a fight and he is mean to her. And this leads to a bizarre reptile pupil alien sex scene. Yeah. Following a rather weird sequence where he begins to take off all of his like fake human parts, including using tweezers to remove his contact lenses that hide his reptile eyes. This movie seems convinced that the way to take contacts out is with metal tweezers, um, which uh, I found particularly horrifying to think about because, you know, I've been wearing contact lenses for like 30 years at this point, and I've never used tweezers to take them out, thank God. Now, eventually, Nathan Bryce and Newton complete the spacecraft that they've been working on. But just when Newton is getting ready to depart Earth, a conspiracy against him is unleashed. So there's like a shadowy government organization. I don't know if it's the CIA or what. And also a consortium of rival corporations have like joined forces to do something about Newton. I honestly don't recall exactly what triggers this. Do you? No, there's kind of there's this whole sequence where he's, you know, Bowie seems to be about ready to board the spaceship. And we're like, all right, let's do this. Let's take off. And then it doesn't happen and everything feels fractured at that point. And so you kind of have to sort of piece together what is happening and what happened. Right. So they uh, this the, the bad guys kidnap uh, Newton and they sort of old boy imprison him. They They lock him in a hotel room and then scientists come and do experiments on him and try to study his body and they treat him cruelly. Like there's a scene where they're 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 trying to uh, in, look at his eyes and he's like, no, don't do x-rays on my eyes. Uh, and they do. And it fuses his contact lenses to his eyes so he can't take them out. So now he can't reveal his real reptile eyes. He's like stuck with human looking eyes. Yeah. yeah they they kind of treat him like a child. Yeah. Um, you know, like it, it's, they're not even like really treating him like an alien prisoner. It's more like he's a child who's been grounded but they keep giving him alcohol to make him compliant with these various tests. And presumably they never really learned much of anything from him. Right. And there's a scene where like when they finally get the x-rays, they're all like grinning with these evil <laughs> uh, faces while you know, while he's cl- clearly there suffering. But yeah, they just keep shoving beef eater in his mouth to, to keep him compliant. Mm-hmm. They also, unfortunately, murder Oliver Farnsworth and his lover Trevor by throwing them out of skyscraper windows. And also, for some reason, they throw out the uh, the barbell that Trevor was bench pressing. Yeah, it's Why weird they because throw that out the window. I don't know. <laughs> it just, I guess, it made for a nice sequence. It's it's so weird looking back on this now because, again, the the film takes the time to develop Farnsworth and his partner as as people that you you know care about to some degree. But then they are dispensed with kind of comedically. Um, and so you don't feel as bad for them as you might. Like you might think a scene like this would be, pre- would be played more for tragedy's sake. And it's, it's not. This is the scene where like Buck Henry, I mean, he's, he's good in the scene. He's quite funny yeah. where like they throw him against the, the window and he's like, oh, sorry about that. Like apologizing that he didn't break through the window as he was supposed <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. So it's a great, great Buck Henry scene for sure. But anyway, so Newton is imprisoned for many years, and finally, Mary Lou finds him. She comes to visit him, and they briefly rekindle their love affair in a 
bizarre series of, of scenes. Uh, but eventually she starts asking him about his wife and family back home, back on his planet. And they decide they do not love each other anymore and they go their separate ways. And Newton escapes his prison, but now he has no hope of ever getting back, uh, ever getting the water back to his home planet or ever seeing his family again. So he takes a, a sort of uh, a sharp right turn. He he becomes a musician and a recording artist of some kind. We never actually see him playing music. Instead, we just see Rip Torn go to a record store and listen to one of Newton's albums. And then in the final scene in the film, Rip Torn finds uh, Newton drinking on the patio of a restaurant and asks him about his music. And, and Newton says it's his only chance of ever speaking to his family again back on his planet. He's hoping they will hear his music on their home planet over the radio beamed through space. And uh, then like the waiter cuts him off and says, you can't, you know, I think you've had enough to drink. And then he bows his head and then the credits roll over the the downturned brim of his hat. Yeah. It, the, the ending alone, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of wonder to it. You know, it, it doesn't end on a note of wonder. Um, and I'm not saying it doesn't work. Uh, and I guess it's kind of a poignant take on the weary, ageless, immortal trope, because at this point in the film, everyone else has aged significantly. But Newton has not aged. He still looks exactly the same. Uh, and, you know, I guess this is one more rumination on alcoholism and loneliness and so forth. But um, it doesn't feel particularly cosmic. Uh, uh, so I, I could see where people would have differing uh, impressions on the, the actual ending to the film. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one of the things I wanted to think about uh, in the movie is the recurring visions of Newton's home planet. Mm. First of all, I would say, I don't know if it actually was, but it looks like it was shot at White Sands National Park in New Mexico. It's got these kind of like white uh, dunes, uh, kind of a pale arrakis, some sort of desert environment. And we see visions of a family with rubber skin and reptile eyes, and they are wearing still suits, basically. They're wearing some kind of suit Mm -hmm. that looks like it's recycling water in these tubes around their skin. Yeah, these are wonderful makeup, wonderful weird costumes. They also kind of walk around oddly. Um, They they look like they have have emerged from some sort of a French animated sci-fi picture. it's, It's a great look. Sometimes we see them languishing and apparently dying in the desert. Uh, I think this seems to be Newton's like fear of what is happening to them in his absence uh, without him completing his mission. Also, a lot of the visions of his home planet involve what should we call it? The furry orange tram. (laughs) There's like a train car that runs on a track through this desert. It's covered in orange shag carpet or fur of some sort. And it's sort of pyramid shaped. And it has this, uh, I don't know, it has like a a tarp covering to block the sun, I think, but it's, it's a furry train. Yeah. It's, it's amazing looking. It it look again, very seventies Euro sci-fi look to this thing. It, it raises so many questions about the technology uh, of these alien creatures in the same way that you have so many questions about their biology. But I like that you have more questions than answers regarding any of this because it is supposed to feel completely alien to us. Another thing I was thinking about with the flashbacks to his home planet, one of his Earth-based sex scenes with, uh, with Mary Lou is intercut with what seems to be a memory of sex on his home planet, which involves like... I don't know, rolling around in Ian Holmes blood from Alien. There's just like this frothy white milk everywhere. It's really gross. But I guess if you're from his planet, it's quite romantic. Uh, Yeah, I didn't know what to make out of that other than it was weird. (laughs) 
another thing that I thought was interesting about the film and and did involve a lot of uh, filmmaking technique was Newton's relationship with and eventually obsession with TV, starting with him uh, just wanting to watch television and then wanting to watch multiple televisions at once. And he would and like you, it would cut between the programming on the different televisions, showing all these sort of aspects of humanity. And uh, and there is one part where he he has a sort of alcoholic uh tv freak out moment where he's like drinking and he's watching 20 tvs at once and they start overwhelming him clearly and and he starts screaming get out of my mind <laughs> and but i wonder where this comes from i feel like there's this it's, it's interesting to look back on pictures like this there are various pictures i can think of off the top of my head that do get into this idea you know sometimes for comedic effect sometimes for fantastic effect about just how overwhelming uh, it it suddenly felt like to have access to especially cable television or even mm. satellite television um, you know, that very well may line up with this idea of overchoice that we've been discussing in our um, uh, future shock episodes. You know, the, this idea it's like suddenly you can watch television all the time and you have access to tens, dozens, maybe hundreds of channels. You can basically start watching television and not stop. And it can, I guess, feel kind of alien for us to think about this because, you know, certainly we can still watch a lot of television, as we've discussed. Um, but I feel like our relationship with television is a little different now because we have these other major super time suck distractions via the Internet that are also vying for our attention. Yeah, there was actually one thing about TV in this movie. It was a scene that I thought was really fascinating uh, that I want to get into in more depth here. So it's the scene where Rip Torn confronts Bowie about being an alien. Um, so to, to set the scene, uh, Newton is like hiding alone in a dilapidated shack in the desert, watching TV. He's like watching mm -hmm. a Western, I think drinking. And then Bryce arrives and Bryce confronts him and Newton admits that he is an alien. And he, this is the scene where he explains his mission, you know, on his home planet. There's a terrible drought. He says uh, he says that he saw pictures of our planet on TV, on the TV that reached his planet and saw the water on the surface. So he is here to get the water. So he knows Earth from television, uh, which this in, in one sense, maybe explains part of Newton's obsession with watching TV, or maybe it's just the raw appeal of TV to any sentient being that can that can see it. Um, but anyway, so he so he explains his mission, and then uh, Bryce says to him, "Are you the first? And Newton says, uh, "There have always been visitors. In fact, he says even on his home planet, they found evidence of visitors who had been there." And then he says to Bryce, uh, haven't you seen them here on Earth? Haven't, haven't you come across them? And then Bryce says, no, he doesn't think he's seen them. And then uh, uh, Bowie says, oh, uh, I've seen them. And first of all, like, that was a cool moment. I was like, oh, ooh, there have been other aliens here. But then it develops further and goes in a totally different direction. It seems to me... Uh, so, like, Bryce seems unconvinced about Bowie saying this. And he's like, what What do you mean? What's the evidence of them being here? And then I think it's sort of implied that Newton thinks there have been other alien visitors to Earth 
because he's been tricked by stuff he saw on TV. Like he literally has been watching in search of <laughs> and stuff about UFOs and ancient aliens and stuff. Like, I think he's talking about Eric Von Daniken or something. And, oh, yeah. and, Bri and Bryce is like, well, I, I don't believe in any of that. And then Bowie just, just kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, there, there, there has to be something out there, <laughs> but that was so, so like, imagine an alien coming to earth and then falling for all of the like UFO stuff and being like, oh, I guess there have been a bunch of other visitors here. Yeah. Like, just like the rest of us seeing stuff on TV. Yeah, I like that side of this scene. But but even like that initial feeling of like, well, here's the alien visitor potentially confirming that there are yet other alien visitors. Like mm. in, in a sense, like he has insight that we don't have because he does have like some like he knows there are aliens mm -hmm. and he can he can you know sort of compare with what they know on his world as well and yeah i, I liked it it's a, a nice weird uh section of the film i love that the one too yeah you think he has special insight but then it becomes maybe he actually has the same insight that lots of people think they have which is they watched yeah. in search of yeah <laughs> I just looked it up. It wouldn't be in search of because that didn't start until the year after this movie, but it would have been whatever the equivalent of that was. Yeah. Now, there's another thing I wanted to get into, which is Newton's relationship with Mary Lou. She obviously really loves him. She's in love with him. Does he love her? Uh, as I was saying earlier, Bowie's performance is very ambiguous. He's off, He's often kind of... Uh, aloof and kind of tranquilized and seems to be not reacting to things very strongly, but then sometimes reacting very strongly in, in sudden outbursts and unexpected ways. So he's often kind of somnambulant, and then suddenly he shows clear, warm emotion toward uh, toward Mary Lou. Uh, but even in the moments when he does that, it's it, it feels kind of uh, random, like other times he has these strong emotional outbursts like anger or dangerous playfulness at her or mm -hmm. kind of sappy love bombing. And it's not easy to tell like why each particular emotion is coming out at the time that it is. And I guess you could just say like, well, he's an alien and he can't relate to us. And, you know, so it's hard to understand his, you know, the way his mind works. But what is his relationship to the people of Earth, especially the few people close to him? Does he care about them? Does he love them? I mean, I guess the the feeling I got from the film is that it's it's paradoxical, you know. It's and it's and it, it may vary from one point to another. You know, he's. Um, it, it seems like one of Nicholas Rogue's approaches here in this film, anyway, is that like all humans and even non-human characters are complex. You know, and it's like just because they even have a reduced role in the plot doesn't mean that they're not complex people with with passions and, and fears and moments of tenderness. Um, so I, I think it's very possible, yeah, that there are times and there there is a part of him that does feel this deep attachment to Mary Lou. And perhaps that grows over time, the more of an earthling he becomes. But then also he is still other. He is still an alien. He still has this family that he has essentially kind of abandoned. Like there's, there's the, this movie, the, the, again, kind of triangulating different ideas. Like you have, um, you, you have his character who has an alien wife and children on another world, perhaps dying because he has gone to get help and hasn't come back yet. And then you have Rip Torn's character who also has um, a wife and child that he has, um, 
uh, you know, distant from and estranged from. And then we also see the Peters character, uh, you know, the government um, agency guy, and we see his family. And th- this is a, an example of where the, the family unit is intact. And so we're, you know, I, I think we're supposed to compare these. We're supposed to think about how these apply to these models apply to each other. Yeah, there is definitely something going on with the theme of like the families elsewhere. And I think the way it resonated for me with like these weird moments of like seeing Peter's at home with his family suddenly, like, you know, tucking his children in and and then discussing with his wife whether he know, he's like, are we really doing the right thing? Uh, is a strange moment, again, that you would not expect with this type of character in another movie. It's almost like it's a different way of reminding someone that even though he is shown with his family here, it's like showing you that in these other scenes where he's just doing the conspiracy, he had a family elsewhere. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a very thoughtful, very thought provoking film that um, I guess ultimately it puts a lot of the legwork uh, on the viewer to try and sort of piece things together and figure out what is being said. It doesn't necessarily hold your hand. I like that. Yeah. Now, I wanted to, to touch on the eroticism of the film again. Um, and I don't think it would be accurate to classify this as an erotic film by any sense, uh, though it certainly makes frequent use of eroticism. Um, we have scenes that feature male and female nudity, as well as alien and human nudity, I suppose. And they feature human nudity in a way that is generally like unapologetic and, and frank in ways that viewers might not be accustomed to. But Rogue, again, is, doesn't seem to be doing this just for titillation. Uh, at least to me, these, feel, these scenes feel less exploitive, maybe more voyeuristic, though, because instead of flesh, again, being the destination of the scene, as it often is in other films, especially the kind we often end up watching on Weird House, flesh is another tool that the filmmaker uses to explore a character, to explore a relationship between characters. And, but, but then this actually ends up making the scenes more titillating because they feel more genuine and actually provide insight into the inner depths of the characters on the screen. You're not just watching, you don't feel like you're just watching flesh. You are watching flesh and emotion as one. Uh, Yeah, I would say that this just seems like a film in which sex is more so than in most films, a locus of drama itself. It like, it shows how uh, the characters are relating to one another, one another and what their lives mean and, uh, and how, what they, and how the ways they relate to each other is changing. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I was looking at a, an article from 2011. This was in the guardian, uh, by Danny Lee titled good screen sex is hard to find unless you watch a Nicholas rogue film. <laughs> and the article is, is very interesting and in depth if, if for people interested in uh, this uh, filmmaker's work, but the article speaks of The Man Who Fell to Earth as, quote, a deeply melancholy film with a strange and genuinely beautiful sex scene between David Bowie's stranded alien Newton and Candy Clark's hotel maid Mary Lou that replaced the fierce heat of Don't Look Now with an existential ache and plenty of gunplay. Oh, okay. So this is this talking about the quote "Hello, Mary Lou" scene, where they've got a revolver involved there. Yes, this is a deliriously ludicrous scene. Um, it begins with a kind of like rough edge of meanness and potential violence, where uh, Newton has a, a this shiny revolver and you know stirring he's seen, his drink with it. He's making yeah, stirring cocktails. his drink with it. Yeah, yeah, and then like licking it. He like puts the barrel in his mouth to lick the alcohol off of it, and then he's like brandishing it at Mary Lou. And you know, it, it, this again, this feels 
potentially uh, like it's going to go in a really horrible direction. But then the whole scene transforms into an ab- just an absurd erotic romp with a kind of a heartfelt um, eroticism at the, at the core, but also just a laughable and intentional disregard for how blank firearm cartridges work and oh. just how basic handgun safety works. Because as they're engaging in this kind of like playful foreplay, they are also firing this gun at each other at like point blank range uh, and be like, that's beyond, not safe folks. <laughs> yeah. Not at all safe. Like not at all realistic. Do not get any actual foreplay ideas from this film. Um, but it, yeah, it's just completely bonkers, but also very tender. It's yeah. so again, this film is like that. <laughs> it's uh, you'll, it'll have, different energies and also like the, the, the like same uh, similar but but opposite energies in, in the same sequence. Yeah, it's strange, emotionally complex. Uh yeah, it, it, I thought this se- I when you said that this sequence was part that was cut out, I was like, "What? They cut out that <laughs> part?" I, I don't understand how you would have this movie without that part. Uh but then it transitions to um, to Newton and Mary Lou uh, playing table tennis in this room with bizarre forest patterned wallpaper and they decide they don't love each other anymore. Yeah, and this is one of many sequences too where there's just way too many half-consumed bottles of alcohol just sitting around like it's clear that the alcoholism is just out of control. And Oh, and then there's a weird sequence in there too where like she asks him, like, why does he drink? Because he apparently doesn't physically get drunk. Um, and he's like, well, I see things when I drink. And mm. uh, I didn't know what, quite what to make of that. She says you never get sick. I think she means like, you know, oh, okay. you're never hung over. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if I buy that because he seemed hung over a lot. In the- yeah. <laughs> uh, but that that's what she says. And then he says, yeah, I see things. I see bodies. I see yeah. the bodies of men and women. That's just Newton being Newton. Yeah. She's kind of scandalized by this. Like, oh, really? Mm. Oh, yes, yes, I do remember this part, yes. But then we never actually figure out what he's talking about. Yeah, and this is the part where he's pointing the gun at her. Yes. But she thinks it's funny. So they end up going their own separate ways. Um, Bryce and Mary Lou end up becoming a couple. They say they have Christmas together. We get a whole Christmas sequence. They're both drinking a lot also, continuing with the themes there. But yeah, they have Christmas. Uh, We have Rip Torn dressed as Santa Claus in a liquor (laughs) store. And... (laughs) The, yeah, they're getting ready for Christmas. Um, and then somehow this leads to uh, Bryce ending up listening to the record and then going to talk to Newton one last time. And Newton asks him, did you like the record? And Rip Torn says, not much. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be popular enough to get enough airplay. So right. those those signals make it out to the mystery home planet um, of David Bowie. That's right. So I guess he's trying to specialize in radio-ready, uh, commercial, commercially marketable hits uh, yeah. that have secret encoded messages that his that his rubber uh, still suit wearing uh, family will understand. Yeah, but yeah, but you know, seriously, there's a lot to sort of dissect there too. Like this idea that he sets out to do something to support his family, to reconnect with his family, but eventually he just tries to create art instead that may somehow reach them in a distant and non-physical fashion he came here to save their lives he failed and in the end all he could do was hope to speak to them again yeah so it's you know it's powerful stuff 
All right. That's the man who fell to earth. Uh, so yeah, we, we, uh, this is a very interesting film to, to look at. Um, I, uh, I'd be interested to hear what listeners think of the movie, what your relationship with the, the movie over the years has been. Uh, if we have any Bowie fans out there, how does it play into your understanding and appreciation of the artist? Why does he need a TV when he's got T-Rex? <laughs> and, you know, I'm tempted to, to rewatch The Witches now uh, because it's like I, I've, I've seen this whole, like, I've seen the real Nicholas Rogue. I want to, like, maybe watch something that is more commercial and more family-oriented and see, like, what did he bring to the table in that? Because I don't, it's been a long time since I've saw, seen the original adaptation of The Witches. It has some great performances in it, some great puppetry in it, uh, but I can't speak to, like, the, the fingerprints of, of Nicholas Rogue on that picture. Mm -hmm. But hey, maybe some of uh, you listeners have, li have watched it more recently and you can speak to that for us. So we'll go ahead and close the book on this one. But just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with new episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail. On Wednesdays, uh, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. And if you want to see all the like a list of all the films we've done over the years, uh, the main place to go is go to letterboxd.com. Uh, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. You'll find our profile there. We are Weird House, and we have a list, and you can pull up all the like the poster images and the details of the films we've talked about. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.